If you all can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started in just a moment. Um, there is catapult today, so any of the catapult students, the 10 through 12 year olds, there is a catapult ministry in the back being taught by Jason White this morning. And uh, so feel free to head back there, catapult students. Um, also, just want to uh, let you know how excited I am this morning for you to hear Ethan Prouse preach God's word to us. Uh, Ethan is one of the young men who uh, is really has been really seeking and exploring whether or not God would be calling him to, to be an elder in our church someday, be a pastor in our church someday. And uh, we've been discipling intentionally him and Jason and Joshua Sarita um, in particular for that, as well as other men who are interested as well in exploring pastoral ministry eldership. And so actually right now, Ethan and Ann, John and I met with them this past week. Um, uh, Ethan was nominated by you, uh, numerous of you, uh, in relation to being a deacon in the church. And so we're really grateful about that as well. He's praying about that right now. But he's doing a number of things right now to strengthen our church evangelistically and also do, just doing a great job overseeing the catapult ministry for our 10 through 12-year-old young men and women. So I'm so grateful for him, and I'm really excited for you to hear this message on Psalm 19 this morning. So can we thank God for Ethan Prowse as he comes and preaches God's word to us. Ethan? Good morning, church. It is such a joy to be with you this morning, and uh, I'm just praising God together with you for the ways that he, he's spoken to us already this morning, from the worship through song to the ministry mic, and the way that Psalm 19 has already impressed your hearts this morning. So I'm just excited to see along with you what God is going to do um, now through his word preached. So if you have your Bible, please open with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Well, it was the summer of 2006, and there was much anticipation building in the Prowse home as we prepared to embark on our annual summer vacation. Now, this vacation was unlike any other. This vacation, we were headed to the Cleveland, Ohio area, where my brother and I might just have the chance to meet LeBron James at his annual charity event. Now, my brother and I are big sports fans, so this was exciting for us. And as the day finally arrived, we got decked out in our basketball gear. We went to this event, and uh, we enjoyed the festivities waiting for our moment to be face-to-face with one of the greatest athletes in the world. Well, a huge crowd gathered at the end of the event, watching LeBron on a stage talking and dancing with his other celebrity friends, and then the moment came. As LeBron walked off the stage, he came straight through an aisle in the middle of the crowd, and my brother and I could barely contain our excitement as we pressed ourselves forward, and as LeBron walked by us, we reached out past the security guard and touched LeBron on the arm. Well, with his shades on, LeBron glanced our way for a split second and kept on walking as he made his way out. And that was it. Such anticipation for a split second glance. Reflecting on it now, that moment was quite anticlimactic. We did everything we possibly could to make ourselves known to LeBron James. We drove to Ohio, we waited out the day, we pressed through the crowd, we reached past the security guard, my brother even talked to LeBron's mom at one point, and all we got was a split-second glance through dark sunglasses. How disappointing that was for us. 
I'm sure many of you probably have similar split-second glance stories of so-called meeting some of your favorite celebrities. But isn't that how many people think of God as well? They think that if they just work hard enough, go to all the right places, get everything just right, follow all the rules, then maybe, just maybe, they could catch a split-second glance of approval from him. Well, the glorious truth for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not a God of split-second glances. In fact, the God of the Bible is infinitely greater and more unapproachable than any person in the entire world, and there would be absolutely no way that we could know him if he didn't first make himself known to us. But the glorious truth this morning is that he has made himself known to us. Psalm 19, which we're going to look at together, celebrates the ways that God has made himself known to us, and it concludes with a humble heart posture in response to God's revelation. That's the point of Psalm 19. God speaks, we respond. Let's read it together. Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The title of the message this morning is Responding to Our Revelatory God, let's pray together. Almighty God, we are in awe of the ways that you have indeed made yourself known to us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you that you are not a God of split-second glances, but you are a God who has chosen to make yourself known to us in innumerable ways, in such a clear way. God, you've given us a way to know you. I pray this morning that you would strengthen our faith, that you would awaken new faith in unbelievers here, and that by your spirit, we would see you, we would hear from you, and we would be driven to repentance 
as your word instructs us this morning. Thank you for Jesus who died for us and made it possible for us to know you. And we pray these things in his matchless name. Amen. C.S. Lewis has said of Psalm 19 that he takes it to be the greatest poem in the book of Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. I think he's right. Before we break down the passage together, it's important to note that this psalm, written by King David of Israel, a man after God's own heart, falls within the genre of Hebrew poetry. And one of the distinct features of Hebrew poetry, which is found often in the Bible, is the way that it builds towards its climax. In other words, it moves in a sense from lesser things to greater things so that the resounding notes come toward the end of the verses. So in a way, Hebrew poetry acts a little bit like a good movie. It builds and it builds and it builds leading up to its main scene that leaves the audience in a sense of awe and wonder. Psalm 19 has that sort of effect. It builds and builds and builds as it drives home its resounding theme that reflecting on God's revelation invokes humble petition. By revelation, I mean not the last book of the Bible, but rather the innumerable ways that God has chosen to make himself known to us. In other words, if we truly dwell on the ways in which the covenant-keeping almighty God has made himself known to us, it will necessarily produce within us a brokenness over our sin and a repentance before our Savior. That's the resounding theme of Psalm 19. God's revelation invokes, it produces humble petition in our souls. David celebrates this psalm, or celebrates this theme in the psalm through three stanzas, two of which cover God's revelation and one of which deals with man's response to it. The first stanza covers verses one through six and deals with the testimony of creation. And the second, verses 7 through 11, tells of the testimony of the word. And the third, verses 12 through 14, concludes with the response of the man. My prayer for us this morning is that, like David, as we reflect together on God's gracious revelation to us, our hearts would be moved to humble, repentant petition before him. So let's look together at stanza one, the revelation of God's creation. Well, as we begin reading this psalm, we can almost picture David simply enthralled at some beautiful scene in creation. Perhaps it's early in the morning and he's watching the sun rise over the hills. It's radiance glistening against the dewy grass and illuminating the sky with many hues of color. Or maybe he's looking over the sea with a vast expanse of water as far as his eyes can behold, feeling a cool breeze and listening as the waves gently lap against the shore. Maybe as I describe these scenes, you're going to your favorite vacation spot or you're thinking of some majestic sight that you've seen recently. No matter where he was, we can be sure that David's mind and heart were filled with awe as he reflected on the creative splendor of his creator. And he could not help bursting with praise. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. These lines of praise are both remarkable and insightful for us. Not only do they inspire us to praise, but they teach us deep truths about our God and his creativity. First, the verb declare in the Hebrew is an ongoing action. 
And so this action of declaring, which David is talking about, continually occurs and it never stops. In other words, the heavens declare the glory of God over and over and over again, never ceasing to declare his glory. And not only that, but the word heavens in the first line is paired with sky above in the second line. And paired together here as they are elsewhere in scripture, these two words combine to include the entirety of creation. And so when David says the heavens are continually declaring the glory of God, he's not simply thinking of the sky as amazing as the sky is, but rather he is thinking of everything that God has created. Every single thing that God has created is continually declaring his glory. Now, what exactly is it that creation is declaring? The word says here is the glory of God. But sometimes glory can be one of those words that we use so much and we don't truly think about what it means. Do we really understand what his glory is? The Hebrew word translated glory is kaved, and the word kaved has a sense of literal weight or heaviness to it. In other words, God's glory is his weightiness. It's his magnitude. I like to think that glory is one of those words that's almost better felt than it is defined. My wife and I, we, we love to hike, and last summer we took an anniversary vacation to North Carolina, and we visited a place called Stone Mountain. And at Stone Mountain, we got the opportunity to hike to a large rock face. We're standing on this huge slab of stone, and we can look out and see just an incredible array of mountains, valleys, and forests in front of us. It was one of those moments that truly robs your speech and lives you, and, and leaves you in an inexhaustible sense of awe and wonder. I almost felt in that moment a sense of weight upon my shoulders. Perhaps you've been there as well. You've, you've seen something so amazing in creation, or perhaps you've seen something so small, like looking in your newborn baby's eyes for the first time, and you feel a sense of weight on your shoulders. That's glory. Glory is a sense of weight that leaves us breathless, speechless, with awe and wonder. And we see then that all of creation is meant to continually take our breath away and drive us to praise our glorious creator in light of that glory. And when David says that the sky above proclaims his handiwork, it means that creation is actually causing God's handiwork, which is a display of his glory to be known. And so the purpose of creation is to proclaim the glory of God and creation never ceases to accomplish that purpose. So here's the point for us, dear friends. Everything we see in all of creation is continually preaching God's glory to us. Everything that has been created exists for the same purpose. From apples to alligators, from brains to babies, from carrots to ourselves, to zebras and zinc and zinnia flowers. It's all here for the same purpose, to preach the message that he is glorious. And his glory is absolutely without compare. And this point from verse 1 is further strengthened by verse 2. 
the day to day and night to night are paired together to communicate that this declaration of creation is continuous. It's all of the time. It never ceases. All of the time, all of creation is continually declaring God's glory. Not only does creation declare God's magnitude, but not one ounce of creation ever ceases to declare his glory. So the point of the point of this first stanza then is summarized in verses three and four. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice talking about creation, proclaiming the glory of God goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So here's the application for us. Every moment that you and I fail to be absolutely enthralled by God's glory is a moment that we fail to see his glory around us. God's glory is constantly around us, and we need eyes to behold that glory for what it truly is. The small town that I grew up in was an absolute spectacle of creation. In my backyard was a small mountain that lit up with the colors of fall, and the beautiful Susquehanna River was just down the road. And you know what? I didn't learn to appreciate these things and, and the glory of God through them until college. When I brought friends home from college to visit my hometown, they would always be amazed and say, you grew up here? From their reactions, I learned the important truth that familiarity breeds apathy if it's not fought with awe. Familiarity breeds apathy if it's not fought with awe. We can, be, we can become so familiar with God's glory revealed in our spouses, our children, the sunrise on our morning commute, the mountain in our backyard, the glistening of the grass, the, the pounding of a hard thunderstorm, that we miss the immense joy that our Creator intends to give us in His glory. Oh, that we would have eyes to see. Well, David concludes this first stanza with just one example of the sun and how its scorching might proclaims God's glory. Just as there is nothing hidden from the sun's heat, so there is nothing hidden from the weightiness of God's majesty. Now, we could just stop here and spend our time reflecting on such majesty in every single moment of our lives, but David doesn't stop here, and so we won't either. God's self-revelation becomes even more clear and more glorious in stanza two. Well, as the new stanza begins in verse seven, the psalm takes a sharp turn in its topic. The focus now shifts from God's revelation in creation to his revelation in his word. And from this point on in verse seven, David refers to God by his covenantal name, Yahweh. Anytime we see the all caps Lord in our English Bibles, it refers to God's covenant name for his covenant people. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God with steadfast love for his chosen people. And his name is deeply personal. And so verse 7 marks a decisive turn in the text from the impersonal nature of God's creation to the deeply personal, indeed covenantal nature of Yahweh's word. Recall how we noted at the beginning that the language in Hebrew poetry sharpens and builds upon itself so that what was introduced earlier, as true and glorious as that is, is outdone by the beauty and the truth of what follows. 
in that sense, then the simple fact that stanza two opens by calling God by his covenant name, Yahweh, makes it even more glorious than stanza one. So what David is telling us here is that creation is magnificent, but Yahweh's covenant words are even better. As we look at verses 7 and 8 of the second stanza, we notice that there are different words used here to refer to Yahweh's worth. Verse 7 lists law and testimony. Verse 8 includes precepts and commandment. Another strategy of Hebrew poetry used here is that the poet will often note different parts of something to refer to the whole. It's like a surround sound system at a movie theater. You probably experienced this. You're sitting at the theater and you hear a noise clearly to your side. And first you think, well, what was that? Until you realize it's, it's part of the movie. Well, Hebrew poetry often uses this surround sound system of words to communicate a single message to us. And so in verses 7 and 8, the surround sound words of law, testimony, precepts, and commandments combine to refer to the whole of God's word and its benefits for his covenant people. And the point of verse 7 is that his word is restorative. It brings life to the weary soul, and it brings wisdom to the simple, humble person. The decisive turn in theme from creation to the word in verse 7 communicates that if God's transcendent majesty is glorious in creation, then his intimate restoration is even more glorious in his covenant words. When we reflect on creation, we feel the weight of God's transcendence, his farness beyond us. And when we reflect on God's word, we feel the weight of his nearness to us. And his deeply personal words literally revive our souls. If you're a believer here this morning, I'm sure that you have experienced this at times in your Christian life. You've been weary from the weight of this world. You've been broken under the trials of this life. Perhaps you've been sickened by your own sin. And in your moment of desperation, you've gone to the words of Yahweh your tending, your tender father, and you've been restored. For Yahweh's people, his word is like an ice-cold glass of water after a long day in the scorching 100-plus degree summer sun like we've experienced in the past few weeks. You see, without his word, we would be weary to the point of utter spiritual exhaustion. But when we drink from its living waters of joy and life, we are spiritually restored. That's the point of verse 7. Yahweh's words revive his people. Well, verse 8 then describes further benefits of the word of God. Not only does his word bring life, but it actually causes his people to rejoice and it enlightens the eyes, which means that it gives insight and understanding. So from verses 7 and 8, we notice that God's word has multifaceted spiritual benefits for his people. It restores, it gives wisdom, it brings joy, and it gives insight and understanding. Do you need restoration in life? Do you need wisdom? Are you lacking joy? Are you seeking insight and understanding? Go to your Bible. God's word is sure. His promises are true. 
reading his word and reflecting on it will bring about immense spiritual benefits in your life, no matter what challenges lie ahead. And you see, reflecting on the word of God is even more glorious for us today than it was for King David. Remember how the different words used in these verses refer to God's word to communicate a single message that his word as a whole brings about immense spiritual benefit. Dear brothers and sisters, by the amazing grace of our revelatory God, we see the most glorious aspect of the word that even David himself did not see. And that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Listen to how the author of Hebrews reflects on this most excellent evidence of God's self-revelation. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And as the apostle John proclaims, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. God's majestic weight of glory has been most clearly. And most purely and most beautifully and preciously. Evidenced to us in his son Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. See, every single one of us has rejected the glorious creator God. As Romans 1 states, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of created things. We have taken the glory of God revealed in creation and have glorified the creation instead of the creator. We're all guilty of this. We have valued people more than the God whose image they bear. We have desired our comfort more than the God of all comfort. We have treasured the beauty of this world over the God who makes all things beautiful. We have loved the creation more than the creator. We have all spurned the all-glorious God. But in his pure grace, he chose to reveal himself to humanity by becoming man. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law of God that you and I have broken and he died to pay the penalty for the rebellion of all who trust in him. And then he rose from the grave guaranteeing eternal life in heaven for all who will repent of their sin and put their faith in him. I plead with you, dear friend, if you have never repented and trusted in Jesus for salvation, please do so this morning. You too can enjoy the glory of God and drink from his restoration in his word. If you would, if you would turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus and may all of us see Jesus for who he truly is. And may we be freshly moved to put our faith in him and find daily restoration for our weary souls. Well, knowing that Yahweh's words are revealed most clearly in Christ, let us move on to verse 9. Verse 9 communicates further characteristics of the word. First, David uses the effect of the word, fear or reverential awe, to refer to the word itself. And he notes that it's pure and it's eternal. 
In the second line, he, he notes the rules or decisions of Yahweh to refer to God's actions through his word. And in doing so, he communicates that God's word is absolutely true and utterly righteous. As Alex shared with us this morning, his law is morally perfect. The word of Yahweh is not only spiritually and subjectively beneficial. Not only is it beautiful to us personally, but it is it is objectively pure and eternal. It's true simply because it's the word of God and not because we appreciate it. We appreciate it because it's the word of God and because it's true. He is the one who makes it true, not us. And that's the point of verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9. This truth is most gloriously evident to us in Christ. Well, then verses 10 and 11 serve as a fitting conclusion to this second stanza. Verse 10 uses two images, gold and honey, to communicate the unparalleled value of God's word. One interpreter has noticed a hyper-intensification in these verses. So when David says that the word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and that it's sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb, he is telling us that the word of God is more desirable than the purest of all gold and the sweetest of all honey. And in doing so, we learn that the word of God is the most desirable thing imaginable. And I ask the question of you and myself, brothers and sisters, is your Bible the most desirable thing imaginable in your life? If offered the greatest riches and sweetest pleasures this world has to offer, would you honestly say in your heart, I'd rather have my Bible? See, the soul that rightly reflects on God's self-revelation would answer yes, joyfully, to that question every single time. If you're like me, you would find it very hard to honestly answer yes to that question much more often than you would like to admit. Remember, familiarity breeds apathy if it's not fought earnestly with all. Here in our context, we have such abundant access to the word of God. We have Bibles on our phones, Bibles on our computers, Bibles on our tablets, Bibles in our cars, Bibles in our backpacks, Bibles in every room of our house, including the bathroom. This ease of access to the word of God is a truly incredible gift of grace. And yet we must be careful to fight that familiarity that, that, can, that can cause apathy if we don't have awe and amazement over our Bibles. I've seen pictures and videos where cases of Bibles are delivered to African villages that have never before had access to God's word in their language. And the people literally explode with joy when they get their Bible in their hands for the very first time. They shout and dance because they cannot contain their amazement over God's covenant words and the fact that they now have them. You and I have just as much reason as these people to literally explode with joy every time we open our Bibles. But just like we need eyes to see the glory in creation, we need eyes to see the glory in the word. As you open your Bibles this week, slow down 
and fix your mind on the glory that lay in your lap. And then read with eyes of wonder. May it be far from you and I to ever become so accustomed to God's word that we lose our sense of awe at it. That we fail to desire it more than the greatest riches and the sweetest pleasures of this world. The word of God promises immense spiritual blessings beyond compare, far more valuable than anything else we could ever imagine. And these spiritual blessings, as verse 11 makes clear, are both warning and great reward. From God's word, we find abundant eternal life. And therefore, his word revealed in Jesus is indeed the most desirable thing imaginable in all the world. Hopefully it's obvious by now that the testimony of God's word is even more glorious than the testimony of God's creation. The sense of awe and utter amazement we feel on top of a mountain overlooking the glory of creation as far as our eyes can see should be completely outdone by the sense of awe and amazement we feel when we open our Bibles. Our Bibles should take our breath away much more than the ocean, the mountaintop, or the sunrise ever could. This glory, brothers and sisters, should drive us to absolute repentance, as David communicates in the third and final stanza, the response of man. Well, as David begins this final stanza in verse 12, he has reflected upon the majesty of God revealed in creation and upon the pure grace of God revealed in his word. And as he does so, he is driven to absolute repentance. For David, reflecting on God's self-revelation gives him such an awareness of God's absolute purity and holiness that he can't help but see his own unholiness and be disgusted by it. In verses 12 and 13, David repents and seeks freedom from the whole gamut of sin. The hidden faults in verse 12 are those sins that he is completely unaware of or ignorant to. The presumptuous sins, as he mentions at the beginning of verse 13, are premeditated sins. Not the most destructive in human terms, but still deliberate wrongdoing. And at the end of verse 13, the, the great transgression is the most destructive and serious of sin, like murder or adultery. We don't know whether or not this psalm was written before or after David's sin with Bathsheba, but we know that David was a man who was fully acquainted, deeply acquainted with the full range of sin. Go with me to Jerusalem. When the kings are going out to battle, and David decides to to stay back and send his servants instead, Perhaps he wasn't aware of how destructive his desire was for comfort that caused him to shirk his kingly responsibility and stay home on the couch. This may have been the the hidden fault. And when he goes out on his rooftop and sees Bathsheba bathing, he decides to take a second glance and gives way to the lust building in his heart, the presumptuous sin. And tragically, he sends for Bathsheba to commit adultery with her and later orders the murder of her husband, the great transgression. See, David understands 
that provision for any sin leads to greater and greater sin. Sin that destroys relationships, ruins families, and harms others. If we're honest with ourselves, we too are deeply acquainted with the full range of sin. And so in light of his reflection on God's glory, David seeks freedom from all sin. Think about the flow of the psalm. With his eyes firmly fixed on the Lord, David is moved to mourn over his sin and repent of it. See, it's when we take our eyes off of the Lord and off of his glory that the soil of our souls is fertilized with hidden faults that give root to the presumptuous sins that bear the fruit of great transgression. We can't afford not to reflect on God's glory in creation and in his word. Right reflection on revelation must lead to an earnest desire to be freed from all sin. The mindset that our petty sins aren't much of a problem is simply unbiblical. For the people of God, there must be an absolute disgust in our souls over all sin. If we are comfortable with any sin in our lives, if even our simple mistakes or our laziness or our character flaws or our materialism or our envy or our covetousness or all of these other things that gri- that give root to great transgression don't disgust us in light of God's holiness then we are not properly reflecting on God's self-revealing glory that's what the word is telling us let us search our hearts brothers and sisters for areas of sin of all degrees in our lives. And let us bring them before the Lord in desperate repentance and reap a harvest of rich spiritual blessing that he intends to give us. This total repentance is indeed the right response to Revelation. Responding in responding to revelation in total repentance is not a fearful thing for the people of God. It's a delight. Yes, we, we fear our Lord with reverential awe, but we're not so afraid of him that we run from him. Rather, we are so amazed with his glory that we run to him because he's given us his son. And secure in him, though you and I are beset with all types of sin, we can continually go to our covenant-keeping Yahweh for grace, knowing that he is for us. As we search our hearts and find such a vast array of sin, may we be joyfully and confidently reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Confident in God's abundant grace despite his abundant sin, David boldly and confidently pleads with his Lord in the final verse. Let the words 
of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This final verse really is a fitting capstone for the whole psalm. David has reflected upon creation's words revealing the glory of God, God's words reviving and enlightening his soul, and now in light of his repentance, he prays for his own words to be pure. He pleads with God for both his external words, the words of his mouth, and the internal words, the meditations of his heart. In other words, he pleads for his entire character, his whole being, to be acceptable before Yahweh. Without such acceptance, David would surely be undone, especially considering his own unholiness. But notice how David, being one of God's covenant people, is driven to the Lord as he becomes aware of his sin, not away from him. In the very last line, he refers to Yahweh as my rock and my redeemer. Yahweh is deeply personal to David. And it's this deep personal relationship that David shares, and as many of you share, that drives David to address his loving father confidently yet honestly about his sin and his impurity. Isn't he your rock and your redeemer too? Isn't he so near to you as your refuge and your hiding place? The one who daily sustains your life, strengthens your faith, Isn't he so gracious to you as your personal Savior, the one who sent his only son to die for you? If you are in Christ, he is your rock and your redeemer. So long with David, as you reflect on Revelation, as you have your sin revealed to you, go to your rock and your redeemer. In Psalm 19, we see very clearly that right reflection on revelation has multifaceted spiritual benefits for the believer. The glory of God in creation thrills our hearts with great joy in him. The grace of God in his word revives our hearts with great insight from him. And our reflection on God in his revelation restores our hearts with great repentance before him. Our enemies, the flesh, the world, the devil, seek to keep us from reflecting on revelation. Our gadgets and our devices seek to steal our attention from a world of wonder that God has created for us to enjoy his glory. Our constant busyness seeks to deplete our devotion from the treasure trove of life-giving truths in his word. And our own self-condemning hearts seek to harden us from repenting and receiving the restorative grace of our rock and our redeemer. But Psalm 19 stands as a beacon of hope for us in this cruel world. So I urge you, dear friend, get outside and behold the glory of God. Take some time to turn off the TV. Put down your cell phone. Go for a hike. Go to the beach. Take a walk in the woods. Have a nice long talk with a trusted friend. And be thrilled by God's majesty in creation. Then go to God and his word. Take some time to really read it. Drink deeply from it. 
pray for the eyes of wonder to savor it and be restored by his grace. And when you find yourself disgusted by your own unholiness in light of the holiness of God that you see, go confidently and boldly to the Lord who is for you in Christ and stands forever as your rock and your redeemer. This time I'd like to ask the worship team to come forward and we will close in singing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you, the almighty God, who have revealed yourself so clearly to us in creation, in your word, in Christ, have chosen to make yourself known to us. God, I thank you that you not only have made yourself known to us as a testimony to your power, but you have come to us to rescue us from our sin. God, I pray for us that you would give us such an amazement at your glory that you would lead us to repent. And as we repent, we would receive great spiritual blessing and restoration from you. God, I pray that the fruit that you reap in our souls from this word would echo into eternity. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Church, I feel moved to pray for the awe and wonder that Ethan highlighted is so vital for us as Christians. To pray for increased awe at God's creation. To pray for increased awe and wonder at God in His covenant word. But also, let us pray together for increased awe and wonder at our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer who has delivered us from our hidden faults, our presumptuous sins, and our great transgressions. Let us repent as a congregation for those sins as we pray. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do pray for greater awe. We pray for reverential fear of You. And Lord, I pray even right now that You would grant us godly sorrow and repentance for hidden faults, our presumptuous sins, and our great transgressions. We ask You for forgiveness for them. We ask for power, Holy Spirit, to overcome them. Lord, help us to throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us that we might run this race for Jesus. Holy Spirit, would You fill us with more awe? Help us, as we were reminded, to to look up and look around and see Your glorious creation pouring forth speech everywhere of Your glory, of Your weightiness. Help us, Almighty God, not to neglect Your Word, but to view it as an ice-cold glass of water in 100-degree heat. 
Lord, would you take away our apathy and our laziness when it comes to our devotional lives, our times of prayer, our times in the Word? Would you increase the awe and wonder amongst all of us here in the church? Protect us from an apathy that slides away to sort of a cool indifference toward not needing to read our Bibles today for whatever reason. Fill us with greater hunger. Fill us with greater anticipation. Fill us with greater pursuit, Holy Spirit. Fill us with You. And we thank You so much. Our rock and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The Word of God incarnate. The One who created all of this with the Word of His power. We are in all of You and Your glory, Your weightiness. Oh, we love You. Oh, increase our awe and wonder, Almighty God, of You and Your Son. Oh, fill us with greater joy and anticipation to see You face to face. We cannot wait to be with You together in heaven. Almighty God, bless our fellowship now as we fellowship over our Koinonia luncheon. Bless us, Lord, as we witness our brothers and sisters in Christ be baptized. We give you all the glory for how you have opened up the eyes of each and every one of us who have believed. Oh, use these young men and women greatly for your glory who will be baptized here in a little bit. And encourage our hearts today as we fellowship. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Ethan, thank you so much, brother, for such a wonderful sermon to edify us. It was such a blessing, bro. Excellent. Jason asked if I would just give a few instructions for Koinonia. Um, if you could all help to break down the room, that would be helpful. Um, also, please keep uh, track of your children and keep them by you so that as men and women are pulling down tables so that we can eat in a few minutes, uh, none of the children get hurt. So please keep your children by you. Um, also, if you could uh, please, um, those who do not have uh, large families and can get through the line quickly with food, we'd ask for you to move quickly through the line uh, so that you can sit down and begin to eat. And uh, for those who are getting baptized, You'll be getting instructions in a little bit for how to give your testimony outside, and we'll be looking forward to that at 1 o'clock. So enjoy lunch, and let's enjoy fellowship together. God bless you.